We've been working our way through 1 Peter, and we're in the second chapter now. And today I want to pick up our reading in verse 17. I'm going to read through verse 19, uh, and we won't probably finish all of that, but it's the bridge into next week's conclusion of chapter 2. But uh, let's open our time to look at these scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Uh, This is where we ended last week. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this day, and we thank you that you are God who has spoken. We thank you that you have superintended the writing down of what you've said and made it available to us today, these ancient words that we can study, eternal words from you. Give us that awe that we should have of having God-breathed words to read and to think about, And then, Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit also carries out an illuminating ministry in our hearts that we would understand more clearly what it is you've said and how it applies. And then an enabling ministry that gives us grace and strength to step out in obedience to do the things you call us to do. So, Lord, work in this time. Give us teachable hearts. We'll thank you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. By way of quick introduction, you know this portion of the second chapter has been given over to the call God has placed on our lives to live differently than the prevailing culture into which he's placed us. He went to great lengths to underscore for us that all of us are sojourners and exiles here in this world. That's how he wants us to see ourselves. As a result of that, God is making it plain to us that he never intended us to be able to fit in in that classic sense, to the culture in which we find ourselves. He's always intended that we would live and act differently than the prevailing culture into which we find our lives unfolding. And the great call, the great challenge, one of the great challenges in the Christian life is to learn how to live in the world, but not fit into the world. To live in the world, but not be of the world. And that's no easy easy challenge, is it? Uh, because we're dominated by the social context in which we find ourselves. And it's a true challenge. The Word of God is key to help us in that challenge. The enabling of the Holy Spirit is key. And the role of the body of believers was intended by God to be key in helping us live counterculturally. Romans 12, 2, you remember, saying, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is where the mind gets renewed, as God takes his word through the working of his Holy Spirit and transforms our thinking. God provided for us, in verses 11 to 16, three cultural contrasts that he wanted to underscore for us to help us to understand what it means to be a sojourner exile, living in but not fitting in to the world in which we find ourselves. The first of those, you remember, was abstaining from the passions of the flesh, 
The world in which we find ourselves is basically explainable by people driven and motivated by sensual satiation. I mean, they're, they're trying to satisfy every craving that's going on in their life. That, that, that's, made, that's presented as being normative. That's the way you're supposed to live. And God says, that's not how I want you to live. Instead, I want you to understand that the flesh is at war against your soul. And we talked more about that. The second of the commands was that I wanted you to live with honorable conduct and good deeds. I'm not only interested in this, as you're living your life out in this world, that you're not doing certain things. I'm interested that you are doing some things. And what I want you doing in the positive is having honorable conduct and good deeds. And that will stand out. Just like not being driven by sensual satiation stands out, so determining that I'm going to seek to be honorable in my conduct, carry out good deeds, it's going to stand out too, quite frankly, brothers and sisters. And then the last thing that we were looking at, and we were examining this yesterday, or last Sunday as well, was to be subject to the governing authorities. The word subject, tupatasso, uh, describing a willing obedience, a willing compliance that God has called for us as his sojourners and exiles placed in this world to obey the authority structures within the civil corporate home world. And each of those characteristic parts of the social structures of this society, he addresses in the latter part of the second chapter and as we get into the third chapter talking about the home. So he is saying, listen, I want you to have this attitude of being subject. Last time we began to look at verse 17. And we encountered a fourth of these culture contrasts. And the fourth of these is that I want you to be a people who show honor and respect to other people. If you show honor and respect to other people, you will definitely not be conformed to the world because the culture in which we find ourselves doesn't do that. People, by and large, don't show much respect and honor to anybody and increasingly to anything. I mean, that's just not the orientation that the world has. The word honor here is the Greek word timeo, which means to show respect, to esteem, to show val- to value another person or something. Uh, God says, I want you to be standing in stark contrast to the society in which you find yourself, to the people that you live around. I want you in stark contrast. And in fact, I want you to tamao, honor, Everyone. And by the way, the Greek's very plain here. There's no exceptions. It wasn't like, here's some exception clauses. Yeah, I want you to honor, but not these people, and not these situations. It's honor everyone. That is our orientation of life. Uh, Why? Because the Bible presents to us that all people are intrinsically valuable and to be honored. Because all people are created in the image of the personal God who's really there. Does that mean God's always pleased with the things they do? Well, of course not. But nonetheless, the human beings are there. There are no mistaken births, as Psalm 139 tries to make so plain to us. Uh, All are planned by God. Everyone is intrinsically, therefore, valuable to the society and God's plan. And that means, by the way, those groups particularly that increasingly society doesn't honor doesn't see worthy of respect, unborns, old, frail, dying, unlovely, sick, poor, 
on and on the list can go. The numbers of people who fit under the category of not really worthy of respect, not really worthy of honor, not intrinsically valuable, keeps growing and growing and growing. Whether it keeps growing or just society allows more of what's always been there of disrespect for people to have more and more social acceptance, I'm not sure which it is, but one cannot look at society very carefully and say people are, are really inherently respecting. What you see is increasingly people diminishing groups and groups and groups and groups to the point where they don't see them as valuable. Well, we won't expand on that anymore. Uh, and God says, listen, what I want the believer to be is somebody who is uniquely demonstrating an orientation toward honor. They show in the respect, the intrinsic respect and value of people at all points along the way. Well, picking up our study, that's where we left off last week. He said, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. God highlights three places, or perhaps we could say three contexts, into which honoring is especially demonstrated. He says, first of all, I want you to love the brotherhood. God wants us, as his redeemed children, to show honor toward those who are making up the spiritual family into which we place ourselves. He wants us to honor those in the church family. And he defines for us what such honoring really calls for. And that honoring calls for loving the brethren. And the word love here translates the Greek word agape, the idea of selflessness, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about agape love and gives us all of those characteristic definitions of it. God says, listen, within what I'm calling for you to do is my sojourner exile, is in the setting of your relationships in the church, I want you to demonstrate that you truly do honor others because you express agape toward them. Or let's put it a different way. You are not honoring brothers and sisters in Christ to the degree that you are not responding to them with agape. Do you follow the point? He says this is what it's all about. This is what Jesus meant in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And by the way, he's talking within the context of the redeemed here. Not that we should hate those who aren't, just that the context is the redeemed. He says, I want you to love one another. Just as I've loved you, you're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. That's who he's talking about, his disciples, the people who have been redeemed. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And in this passage, in John 13, it's agape, is the Greek word translated love. He says, this is how people will know it. He says, I want all the brothers and sisters treated this way. I want you to have this response, this selflessness. Well, pretty straightforward. Although, sadly, if I was to go around and try to get a, a read on, the, on how people perceive church relationships, I'm not sure agape, they wouldn't use the word agape anyway, but I'm not sure what agape means would be what people would tell me when they think about what are church relationships like. Uh, far too often, church relationships are made up of 
no relationships because it's just some sort of massive thing that you attend like a rock concert, or it's made up of warring factions. I mean, it's, you know, agape, is that really what it's about? And uh, God says, that's what I want it to be about. So if we're going to show honor, he says, here's one of the places where it's supposed to be expressed in the body, and you do that by showing agape love. And then secondly, he says, the other, another example of this is how you respond to me. Once again, all of these things set us apart. They're cultural contrasts. And he says, the second area I want you to show honor is how you treat me. I want you to show honor to me. And you cannot show honor to God unless you respond to God with fear. He says, I want you to fear God. Greek word is phobos here, which means a sense of wonder, a sense of awe, a sense of dread, depending on the context. Uh, The idea behind the use of this word is to have a sense of awe at the nature of God, to see him as he is. And so we're awed by that. We, We appropriately esteem and respect what we see in him. It also means a sense of caution. So to have phobos, fear of God, means I'm cautious about displeasing him. I see him as he is, and I want to please him, not displease him. That's what fear of the Lord is. Earlier, by the way, back in the first chapter, we encountered this same word, phobos, talking about it. Verse 17, it says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear, phobos, meaning in your relationship with that one that you call father, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. So it's not the first time he's encountered this issue. He's just coming back to it, and he's saying, hey, this is what honoring is all about. If you are not fearing him, you are not honoring him. Honoring God doesn't come because you sing songs. It comes because of your response to him and a response of fear. By the way, such sense of awe at his very nature to see him as he is and to to be sure that I don't want to displease him is going to show itself, number one, in salvation because people are going to see him as he is, see themselves as they are, and say, woe is me, I'm lost. Here's the gospel, I will confess my sin and I will receive Christ because I'm not in right relationship with the God who's really there. So it'll first of all show itself that way, but then it will show itself in the Romans 12.1 sense that I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It would show itself that way. You come and you say, well, I've come to know Christ, but if I'm continuing to see God as he is then it doesn't make sense for me to do anything less than to be surrendered, to let him be Lord in my life. I want to follow him in that way. And if I say I'm honoring God, but yet I'm resistant on surrendering the control of my life, I'm not, I'm not really allowing him to be Lord, then my words are empty when I say I'm honoring God. And certainly they're empty if I say I'm fearing God, which, by the way, if you remember back in Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom, fear of the Lord very first place you begin with what wisdom is all about in Proverbs 1.7. Well, once again, as I said earlier, with this witness that God is intending to be there 
of how the brothers treat one another, the brothers and sisters, with agape love. And sadly, that's not the first thing that comes to people's minds when they think about the church. I'm wondering what comes to people's minds when they think about people who profess to be believers in terms of their relationship with God. Is what comes to their mind, I don't know what it is, that those people have an awe of God, and boy, they're determined to not displease Him. They, they, they want to please Him in their life. Is that what they think? Or, or what else might come to their mind? Is fear the Lord the part of the witness that's, that's emerging? And God says, if we think we're honoring God and that's not emerging, now people might be puzzled why we respond that way, but they ought to be able to see that is the way we respond. And then he finishes here, but he says, I want you to honor the emperor. He comes back to this word honor, and he links it back to the ideas of verses 13 to 16 of being subject to authorities. And he says, listen, I want you to be more than subject to the authorities. I want you to be honoring of the authorities as well. And you say, well, Lord, I'm having enough trouble with the being subject stuff. You know, what do you mean? You're adding another layer to this thing? And God says, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right, because I'm calling for you to be countercultural. I'm leaving you in, a, in this world so that you might be demonstrating the realities and truths of a different nation and culture altogether. I want you to be countercultural. I want you to be more than subject, even though that in itself is countercultural. I want you to be honoring to the authorities. And when you consider our culture, and I could say this no matter what part of the world you might find yourself in, if you consider our culture, the culture of people essentially dishonor people in leadership positions. People are basically inclined not to show esteem and honor, but to to the degree they can get away with that, assassinate the character of anybody that happens to be in honor in a position of leadership. That's how they approach life. And God says, listen, that's always going to be true, and therefore I'm intending that part of the witness of you as a believer is that you're demonstrating something the world scratches their head about. Can't quite make sense out of it. That you, far from doing that, are demonstrating a respect and an honor. We honor them... In their, with the honor due their position, even if their behaviors may be dishonorable. We honor them in the position that they're in. And that honor will be demonstrated by how we speak to them, first of all, uh, if we, in those opportunities where you actually have a chance to speak to the authority. Now, most of us aren't in places where we speak directly to the authority, although that can happen. Secondly, it's going to show up in how we speak about them to other people. Both are going to be true. He says, okay, you're going to show honor by how you speak to them when you have it, if you're in a place where you can speak to them. And you're going to show honor by how you, or lack of it, by how you speak about them when you're in a place where you're talking about them. You and I are certainly certainly proper for us to be judgmental and critical in the right sense. We can disagree with policies and we can disagree with behaviors, but we have to do it in a frame that doesn't resort to disrespectful speech and character assassination. God says that's how the world does it. That's not how I want you, want you to do it. You can certainly stand against what you see being done or emphasized, 
But you have to do it in the framework where one would still say, I don't know why, but you're, you're honoring these people. And they don't seem like they should get it. And you say, well, that seems awfully, is that, that seems awfully hard, Lord. <laughs> is, that, is that what you're really saying? And the answer is, yeah, that's what he's saying. And, but he doesn't just say it here. Think about these classic examples in the scripture. Consider that period of time after God had pulled David from keeping the sheep and anointed him to be king between that point in time and when he actually became king at the death of Saul. All during that time, there's never an episode where David spoke disrespectfully or treated disrespectfully King Saul. He saw him as the Lord's anointed in that position. God would take care of him in his own time. Even when he had a chance to kill him in the cave, he didn't do it. You say, well, that's, that's pretty hard. Uh, yeah, 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 that's pretty hard. Uh, it always caught Saul by surprise because he didn't treat people that way. But David did. You say, well, are there any other examples? Well, I think a good example of this same principle is the way that Daniel dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. Here he is, ripped out of his homeland, a young teenager, forced into the training program there for the hated enemy, having to appear before this king who had massacred so many, destroyed his homeland, probably killed many in his family and relatives. Uh, And yet there's never an episode in all of the book of Daniel where you saw Daniel speak disrespectfully of Nebuchadnezzar or later on, Darius, he always spoke respectfully to them, even if he disagreed with what they were doing, even if he warned them about what they were doing as being, this would be contrary to what God says, always respectful in the way he spoke to them. You say, oh, I don't know, that's pretty tough. Well, how about Jesus dealing with Pilate? Pilate was was not a moral paragon, as far as Rome was concerned, he, like many of the others who had weaseled their way into certain levels of leadership within the empire, were real characters. And, and they didn't stop being characters once they left wherever it happened to be. You know, Pilate didn't spend his life in Palestine. You know, he went on to other places within the Roman Empire. When he was in Palestine, he knowingly supported and uh, led to massacres of Jews at the time of Jesus, uh, and would also, despite the, just, the injustice of it, allow him to go to the cross. But if you follow Jesus' encounter with, with uh, Pilate, he never spoke disrespectfully to Pilate. Ever. Nor did he speak disrespectfully to the high priest uh, who, over the Sanhedrin. Respectful speech, even in the face of disagreement with the policy, with the direction. Respectful speech. Point. God is saying, when, I, when the people in the world around you see you as aliens, exiles, sojourners, you don't belong here, but you're, I placed you here. Do they say about you, I can't quite make sense out of them, but I know I feel honored and respected by them. Even if they disagree with me, I feel honored and respected by them. My, my issue is not that they disrespect me. It's that whatever other issue may emerge. Is that said? Is that, is that possible? Well, that's what, that's what God is driving at here. Is that's what I want to have shown. That's how I want it to be seen. Countercultural. 
to be honoring of others. Well then, coming to verse 18, he then shifts gears a bit. He says, servants, be subject to your masters in all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. God says, listen, I'm wanting you, let's go back to the submit issue here, which we gave at first the context of civil authority. He says, now I'm going to talk about that submit within the context of economic authority. And economic authority is that having to intersect the work world. Societal structures exist for government. They exist for the work world. They exist in the home, too. That's what I've been making the point of with you, which is why he's addressing each of these areas in this portion of 1 Peter. The word servant here in the ESV uh, literally means house servant. It's a translation of the Greek word oketes, which uh, means household servant, one working for a house. Another of the words we've encountered about servant or slave in our study has been the Greek word doulos, which is, uh, you know, a, a bond servant, one given a long-term commitment to, to servitude. These are, they're both, they're both slaves, and some of the translations use the word slave here, but, but they're different, and I think the ESV captures that a bit by using the word servant and distinguishes that characteristically from the slave itself. They're, with the oketes, the, the servant, the household servant, there's a relationship of sorts existing implied by the use of that word within the household itself. So there's some type of relationship between who's ever in charge and the person doing the work uh, over against the broader issue of servitude in the culture where there may not be any relationship with anybody who's owning the slave depending on how massive are the slave holdings of someone. But this is somebody who's living in the household, so to speak. You know, there's, there's some sort of meaningful connectedness between the household servant. This household servant, by the way, many believers at the time of the New Testament were oketes. They were household servants. So not just a few. In fact, uh, historians say that at the time of, the, of Christ of that first century, upwards of one-third of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves, either oketes or doulos, a third of the population, pretty, pretty substantial. So we can assume quite a few of the believers found themselves in that context. That's where they were. Uh, the scholars of the, of the scriptures say that the oketes, the, the relationship between the oketes, the household servant, and the master, as it's being translated here, parallels the relationship between employers and employees in our current culture. And here's why they say that. Let me give you the explanation. And I, I, think, there's, I think there's a good rationale behind it. They say that because of what's referred to as the economic equation. The economic equation in, in economics, if you were working on your MBA, the economic equation is this. How does your labor link to your lodging and your food and the basic provisions of your life? I mean, what is, how does labor link up with that? That's the equation, what's called the economic equation. Uh, 
The economic equation for some people is that there's very limited connection between their labor and the provision that they have. They're what we call the rich. <laughs> All right, they, they're, they're maybe generationally rich. So the, the, whatever they're doing, and I'm not saying all are not doing anything. You have some very high-spirited, public servant type people. But there's not a direct connection between what they do in the day-to-day walk and getting food on the table and a house, a, a roof to cover you and so forth. You follow the difference? Some people fit into that category just like they did at the time of the Gospels. You know, there were some people pretty wealthy. Uh, there were some people in positions where they were being... Uh, a classic would be, would be the, the example of the military because that was seen as a separate category. And by the way, that involved a lot of people back in that period uh, because la- there was not a direct connection between their labor and their housing, but they had to obey in the military, and part of being in the military is they provided food and whatever lodging and whatever uh, medical help you needed after fighting a battle or something. I mean, as you were... But there was not the same sort of direct connection, like three hours equals this. You know, that's the economic equation. How long do you work to get what these basic needs are? So some fit into that category. And there were a few who were, like, self-employed. Classic example might be a subsistence farmer in that period or a subsistence fisherman or something like that. But they didn't constitute a big portion of society. That was just a smaller number. Most of the people who were farming weren't in subsistence farming. They were working for others. And that's, by the way, not just true at the time of the gospel. Think of what was true throughout all of the Middle Ages, really almost into the modern era. Think of England. Think of Germany. Think of Russia. The majority of the farmers in England, Poland, any of the countries could be looked at, they worked they didn't own their land. They, they worked under the aristocracy. You know, whoever happened to own that region, they were like tenant farmers within the framework of that. Uh, that was normally the case. So they wouldn't have fit into this labor equation in quite the same way either. All right. The Oketes, the household servants being talked about here, got their food and got their clothing and got their, their lodging in exchange for the labor that was going on in the home. Now, granted, they, because they were oketes, didn't have the freedom to change jobs. They, they couldn't go down the street to somebody else and say, I think it's better here, I think I'll work for you. They didn't have that chance, uh, but nonetheless, uh, they, they were, there was an equation here, a link between the basics of life and the labor that they were putting in. And it's on that economic equation that then they say, now this reflects people who are essentially working for other people, even in our current era. Their labor is directly tied to the provision they get. They're paid an hourly wage, for example, or something like that. So there's, there's some sort of clear connection in the economic equation between the work and the provision at the other end. Most people today work for others. The percentages vary according to where you are in this country, but they don't vary in the sense that in some areas most don't work for other people. Almost most people work for somebody else. They're putting in time in exchange for the economic equation. I'm I'm working for you. In return, you're giving me this, which then I'm using to 
get my roof over my head and food for my table and whatever. Do you follow the principle? So that's why, not just here in First Peter, but other places, the, the Bible scholars say, well, listen, that's, that's as close as we get to, to the parallel. We don't have a lot of household servants anymore in the classic sense of that word. But the parallel is there, and therefore the things that are said to them are likely applicable to us as household servants. Uh, as workers in the context of life we're involved in. Uh, so, employees, masters. And he says, okay, what do you want to do? I want you to be subject to them. <laughs> I want you to be subject to the leadership, the economic leadership under which you fit. By the way, as a side note here, and I'm going to draw our study to close with this. Tomorrow, Next time, Lord willing, we'll pick up on verse 18 about uh, being subject even with the unjust ones in those positions. But I, there's not enough time to get into that today, so we'll build on that next week. But here's the point I want you to understand. Scripture never justifies slavery. No one with any kind of intellectual integrity, I'm not talking even believers, anybody with any intellectual integrity who objectively studies it would never conclude that Scripture justifies slavery. It describes it. It talks about people who find themselves in it, how they can function within that capacity. But it doesn't justify it. So somebody trying to use the scriptures and say, well, this was, this was God's plan. He wanted slavery. You, know? you, you have to do torturous exposition of the scriptures to ever ride that conclusion. Although, sadly, even in our country, there were periods of time where pretty torturous exposition was done by some to sort of justify it. But here's the reality. God does describe a number of things, slavery not being the only one, of things that are not in themselves good things, not things he's saying, oh, this is high moral standard stuff, but nonetheless, it's what you live under, and here's how you function in it. Does God justify in the scriptures, does he justify, or is he trying to affirm, like Rome coming in as a conquering ruler, taking over another country, just use Judah as an example, massacring people, subjecting them to terrible things? Is God saying, well, that's, that's really a good thing, that's how I want it to be? Well, of course not. But he describes that condition, and he talks to the Jews and the believers and say, if you're living under that, here's how you live, here's what the things that you do. But in so doing, it's not justifying doing it. You fall, he's... He's saying the issue of what you find yourself under is out of your control. Here's how you live in the face of it. How about Daniel taken off in slavery, ripped away from his homeland as a young teenager. God's not saying, oh, this is a wonderful thing and I think this is a good pattern for home life. Uh, no, but he's saying, Daniel, you're here. Here's what you do in the face of this, which is outside of your control, to be honoring to me. Do you follow the difference? So brothers and sisters... Don't ever come in this body and say nonsensical things like, oh, well, God says slavery is good. Or God says unjust governments are great things. Or, of course not. But sometimes you can find yourself enslaved. And sometimes you can find yourself living under an unjust government. And sometimes you can be in a situation, even in the work world, where things are not very equitable and fair. Fact. My experience here, uh, step away from the word for a moment. One of the things I didn't think about this this week, I never 
in 74 years in this world, and in all kinds of different situations, have had someone come to me and say, you know, I live, I'm in such an equitable, fair work context. You know, Nobody ever has said that to me. Ever. Now, some people are in worse ones than others, of course. But no one's ever come in lavish praise for the equity of their, of their work world. By the way, it's not just laborers. Think of the people that, that run their business, own their business. Probably never anybody come to me and say, I'm just so glad to be living in this equitable universe and everything's just working out fairly for me as an owner. It doesn't work that way either. All right, that's not what happens. It's not the way the world operates. So the issue becomes, what do we do when the reality of the injustice, the unjust, happens? And it's that that we'll end on, because that's the very thing that God now addresses from here right through the end of the chapter. He says, you're going to encounter unjust situations. Skoliois in the Greek. We get the word scoliosis from that, by the way. Scoliois in the Greek is the word translated unjust. That is the experience of us, and it was the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the remaining verses in the second chapter are all given over to saying, what do you do when you find yourself in a scoliois situation? Literally means crooked and bent. Who is in a situation that isn't crooked and bent in the midst of this world? Nobody. So now God says, this is what you do if you find yourself in that sort of twisted and bent situation. Here's how I want you to be. So, Lord willing, we'll begin to look at the, uh, the scoliosis of spirituality, for lack of a better way to describe it, uh, as we come back and examine these things together, Lord willing, next time. Well, let's end our time in our study this day in, uh, in a song together. Talking about unjust worlds, uh, improper circumstances in which we can find ourselves, that we have one who preserves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to be together in this day. So thankful that, in fact, you are our hiding place. You don't hide from us that this world is not always a pleasant place. We need hiding place. You say that's exactly what you are and who you are. Help us to trust you when we're afraid. Help us to rest in you and hide in you when there's no place to turn to. Well, thank you for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.